Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Last March and early April, we had a series of sermons here at the church entitled Soundtracks, The Music of Your Life. In the series, we looked at four different psalms, psalms that called for our open-hearted engagement with God, called on us to be honest and to be candid with God, to share with God in the most open way we possibly could imagine. As part of that, we asked some questions at the end of each of the first three weeks and asked if you would text in your responses. The questions were, week one, the hard question about my life that I would like God to answer is, and then you were to complete that sentence. Secondly, why am I not more honest in my prayers with God? And then the third week, God, today I deeply lament, and then fill in the blank. I was floored with what happened. I was not prepared for the honesty and the candor that came from your texted in responses. And I was quickly to discover that I was far from alone as I listened to many others of you share how you experienced that period of time. My pastoral colleague, Joel Royer, spent hours trying to categorize and catalog and record the answers as much as possible. And when she was done and I got to looking at this, I was again overwhelmed because there were so many different experiences, so many different realities expressed in what you texted in. By far, the number one answer meaning the answer we heard the most number of times, had the word fear in it. There were pages and pages of fear, page after page. Now, certainly they could express different kinds of fears that we might experience and we might have. But at the core of it, no doubt because of the question that was asked, at the core of it was saying, I am afraid of God. It was a sobering experience. So this series that we begin today, You Are His Personal Concern, with a question as a tagline, what if it's possible to live without fear? What if that's possible? This series is an attempt to step into and address some of those realities expressed by your texted in responses. It's the second series in which we've tried to do that. So maybe we ought to, first of all, generally define a couple of terms, the term fear and the term anxiety. Fear seems to, if you look at all the people who write about it, seems to describe that emotional experience that comes when we feel threatened or in some kind of danger. It is the response to that, to flee or to fight or to freeze, some very strong response depending on the degree of fear that we experience, which may diminish or disappear if the object of which we're afraid disappears. Could be a person, could be an experience, could be a place, could be an event. But it threatens us, and so it raises our fear. In that sense, fear can be a protective, a good mechanism. But it can also be one that hinders us in profound ways. Fear. Anxiety. 
Anxiety, on the other hand, while it's related to fear, is a more generalized description of an experience that we have. There could be something also that causes it, or there may be an uncertainty of why is it that I'm feeling so anxious? Why am I having a panic attack? It's a generalized experience that that serves to describe that sense that there is doom up ahead. Something bad is going to happen. I'm not sure how I'm going to change what it is that I feel. Anxiety. Now, both fear and anxiety were present in the answers that you gave. We're going to wade into some of that. Now, I have to tell you, remind some of you up front that anxiety and I were on a first-name basis for a long time. We spent a lot of time with each other, and I didn't enjoy it. But now, quite some years ago, we began, for some specific reasons, to drift apart. We've drifted so much apart that on occasion, when I run into anxiety again, it's almost as though I have to reintroduce myself, and that's a very good feeling, to have that kind of distance. So what I'd like to do is to talk about in this series some of the things that have been very helpful for me. Possibly something there will be helpful for someone here. But I have to say that today, as we begin, we begin first with God. We begin there because those were the responses. Afraid of God could describe response after response after response. I'm afraid of God's judgment. I'm afraid of God's anger. I'm afraid of God's rejection. I'm afraid of God's abandonment. I'm afraid that God will, and you could fill in any number of other realities. I am afraid of God. And so we have to begin with God. But I want to add a qualifier to that. By beginning with God, I am not saying that if you simply pray and read Scripture, your fear will disappear and your anxiety will diminish. I'm not saying that because that may not be true. There are people in this congregation who have walked with Jesus for many years who have had an experience of the diminishment of anxiety and fear as they have deepened their discipleship journey with Jesus. And there are others who have not had that experience for whom that has not fixed it, so to speak. So we'll come to addressing some of those ways as we move through the series. But today, first I'm afraid of you, God. And that fear can affect and infect so much else in our emotional life. So where does that come from? For an answer to that, we're going to go to the very first part of Scripture, chapter 3, to be precise, of the book of Genesis. Go all the way back to the beginning to read some verses there that will set a stage for an answer to that question. Now, before we begin reading, I want to alert you to watch for two or three things as we read. First of all, know that this serpentine conversation between Eve and the serpent has a centerpiece that has to do with the trustworthiness of God. Is God trustworthy? Now, that's true. There are some specifics about that. Three, to be be clear. First of all, it has to do with God's character, then with God's care for us, and then with God's conditions, the limits and the boundaries that he places around us. Is 
God good? That's his character. Is he trustworthy? That's his character. Does God provide for us in the best ways? That's his care. And finally, are the limits, the conditions, the boundaries that God puts in our lives, are they ones that will help us and guard us and protect us? Or is he really stealing our fun and our growth and our wisdom and knowledge? Those are the issues at stake in this passage. So with that in the background, let's read Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty, and just about that word in the Hebrew, it can be positive or negative. It can describe both. Somebody who's astute, who's wise. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's keeping you from something. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Curious, isn't it? Just a few verses back, at the end of the last chapter, we are told that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Nothing has changed in that regard, except that now they feel shame. And they're doing the best they can to cover themselves. So as soon as they take up the insinuations against God's character, God can't be trusted. He's not in it for your good. He's not really caring for you. As soon as they believe that and step up and say, then we're going to take care of ourselves. First experience, shame. And they cover. But that's not all. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. If the first experience was an experience of shame, the second experience is one of fear. I was afraid. I heard you. I was afraid. So I hid. Shame and fear. Profound forces that drive people in profoundly negative ways. And then finally one more, starting in verse 11. And he said, that is God. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. Shame, which led to fear, which led to blame. Did you eat? I mean, the woman, you know, that you made, you gave me. Did you eat? 
Well, I mean, the serpent, you, you made it. You put it here. Things went wrong, but not by me. There were problems, but I didn't commit them. It's not my fault. And those realities continue to pervade the human relational experience. Shame and fear and blame. Those conversations took place this morning among people in this sanctuary. I have no doubt about it. Not my fault. You did it. Stop blaming me. The fear that I'll be tagged with the responsibility. I don't want it. Hiding behind anger to, to, to not have the kind of relationship we were created to have. It just continues. But it's here, right at the beginning of the human story, that we find the genesis of fear in our relationship with God. We could simply say it this way. At the heart of fear is a ruptured relationship with God. At the heart of fear is a ruptured relationship with God. The rest of the biblical narrative fleshes out what that will continue to look like. But before we consider that, I want you to also pay attention to the fact that this passage we just read truly has the first question in Scripture that God asks of us. It's the question, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you? I came here to connect with you, to relate with you, to converse with you. Where are you? It's the question that continues to be asked when one desires relational connection with another. A wife says to a husband who has a faraway look in his eye, where are you? A parent says to a child that never comes to see them, where are you? A child says to a parent who's lost in their phone, where are you? All of those are cries for relationship, questions. Where have you gone? We're not connecting. That's what God is saying to Adam. Where are you? I want relationship with you. The rest of the biblical story is the story of God pursuing that relationship with human beings. Where are you? One divine from a couple of hundred years ago said it this way. He said, it's as though the holy hound of heaven is on the heels of humanity, constantly yipping at our heels, saying, where are you? I want relationship with you. Why? Because at the heart of fear is a ruptured relationship with God. So how does God try to accomplish this? He will try different methods. It begins fairly early in Scripture with his might and power and grandeur and glory. He is, after all, trying to win back to himself, trying to interact with a group of people who have been slaves for 400 years. They have felt abject powerlessness. The Egyptians, their gods have overwhelmed them. They've had no ability to resist. And so God steps into their space as the mighty one, the all-powerful one. When you are weak, you need someone of power who is willing and able to save you. And so God comes as that powerful one. 
And yet it scares them. Scares them profoundly. They come to Sinai. The mountain shakes, rattles, and rolls. The lightning flashes. The thunder rolls. And they say to Moses, you go talk to him. We can't deal with it. This scares the life out of us. It's what you need, but we're not ready for that. Even Moses says, God, I want to see your face. I want to see you. And God says, Moses, you can't. No one can see me and live. And so he covers him in the cleft of the rock and says, once I've passed by, you'll get a fleeting glimpse. But that's all. And God's way of interacting in such fashion continues at times for hundreds of years. God is saying, where are you? I want to connect with you. I want to relate with you. I want to draw you to myself. And it finally culminates on a mount called Carmel with a prophet named Elijah. Elijah has said to the wicked king Ahab, meet me on the mountain and we'll have a divine duel for a divided people. The God who answers by fire, that one is God. And so it is there on the crest of Carmel that Elijah prays and God answers with a fiery holocaust from the sky that obliterates the altar and everything on it and has every person there on their face crying out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Surely God's way of reaching people has finally worked. Twelve hours later, Elijah is awakened and told, Nothing has changed. Jezebel's after you. And he goes into a profound depression. It sends him running back 40 days later to Oreb, Sinai, the mountain of God, secluding himself in, the, in a cave. Some have thought maybe the same cave, the same cleft in which God had shielded Moses. He's back trying to reconnect with the God of power and might and glory. But when all of the magnificent events happen that normally are signs of God's theophany, of God's presence, there's a footnote that says God was not in it. When God's not in it. He was with Job, but not here. Earthquake, God's not in it. He was on this mountain, but not now. Fire, God was not in it. He was on Carmel, but not here. And then a pervasive stillness. A dead calm. And Elijah wraps his face in his mantle and comes out of the cave to stand in the presence of God. And from that point forward, you almost never see God again in the grand and the glorious, the climactic. Now you hear God in the pleading voice of the prophet. Now, do you want to see the face of God? You will see the face of God in the baby in the manger. Now you will see God's utter weakness. But it's the same desire. I'm after you. Where are you? I'll do anything I can to reach you. I want relationship with you. 
If that didn't work, maybe this will work. That baby would grow up and would say things like, do you want to see God? Then look on the dilapidated porch at the old man who rocks in the chair. Big roomy eyes, spittle in his beard. He's just always sitting there, gazing down that lane. Where are you? Where are you? Just thinking. If I ever see that bedraggled figure staggering home, I will bound off this porch with all the vigor of youth and sweep him up into my embrace. Jesus says, that's God. The same glorious God of the galaxies has become the waiting, weeping father. Because he will go to any extreme, any length, use any method to have a relationship with you. That's our God. That's the God of whom we have said we are afraid. <laughs> Do you want to really get a glimpse of God? then come with me to a place called Calvary. Gaze at that tree. We saw the tree in the garden. Gaze at this tree in another garden, a tree that also has fruit, the fruit of love that hangs on it, a tree where you see God at his highest God at his weakest, God at his most loving, God paradoxically at his most powerful, a God who preaches a sermon from Calvary, the title of which is, Where Are You? I'm still looking for you. I want a relationship with you. The author Max Lucado writes of it in these words, the cross rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it, gold-plated and burned it, worn and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? Suspended on its beams is the greatest claim in history, a crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth. Divine, eternal, the death slayer. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the Apostle Paul called the cross event the core of the gospel. It's bottom line sobering. If the account is true, it is history's hinge, period. If it is not, the cross is history's hoax. Which is the cross for you, hinge or hoax? Or in the words of Jesus, who do you say that I am? 
The question must be answered because if the cross is history's hinge, it swings open a door into the very presence of God where we see a God who loves and who will spare no effort to have relationship with his creation. And that means you, whom he loves with an everlasting love. You understand that how we understand God is formative to everything else in our spiritual life. If we have a misguided, unbiblical understanding of God, it can create the kinds of fears that I and you might experience. In fact, Back in the days after 9-11, I got to thinking. There are many reasons why this has happened, and they're discussed at great length in the media, in the press. But maybe there's something to which we haven't given enough attention, that maybe it's a failure to understand God that has helped contribute to this. That if I have a God who is vindictive and angry and vengeful and spiteful, I become that. After some months and years of living with that, I studied and prepared for a series here at our church on the character of God, and I kept casting about what is a title that could capture what I'm trying to say. I didn't do a great job because I came up with one of the longest sermon series titles I've ever had. But at least it said what I was trying to say. The title was simply this. Tell me who your God is, and I'll tell you what your life's like. Tell me who your God is, and I'll tell you what your life's like. Is your God angry, vindictive, judgmental? your God a God of compassion. You may have read the story William Barclay, the venerable Scottish scholar of yesteryear. His daughter, 21 years old, engaged to be married. It's that period of time that's so exciting in a family's life. A lot of stress, but also a lot of joy as they prepare for that moment when their daughter will march down the aisle. And then not long before the wedding, Barclay's daughter and her fiancé capsized in a boat off the coast of Scotland and both drowned. One can only imagine the searing pain, the dark agony. Barclay says that a woman wrote to him during that time, an unsigned letter, wrote to him and said, I know why God killed them, to spare them from your deviant theology. You don't have to wonder what her God was like. Barclay was a much better man than I'll ever be because he said, I wish she had included her name and her address. I would have written back to her and I would have said to her, your God is my devil. That's not God, not God. 
reminded me of the words of the late Fred Craddock. He said, I reject any notion of God that makes me a better Christian than God is. Seriously? You think God would do that, but you never would? You're a better Christian than God is. How we understand God forms everything else. So if we struggle with deep and dark feelings, with fear of God, maybe it's time to go to places like Calvary to understand God. So if it's true to say at the heart of fear is a ruptured relationship with God, what is the healing of that? I want to go back to a book. I know we've spent a little time with it lately, a book called Revelation. Don't worry, I'm going to read a passage we hadn't read yet. Last chapter of Revelation. But as we read these words, I'd like you to keep in the back of your mind the images from Genesis 3. Those images, questions about God, God's character, God's care, God's conditions. Is God trustworthy? Keep in the back of your mind the curse that descended as we read these words from the last chapter of Scripture. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Relationship restored. Could it be that if it's true to say at the heart of fear is a ruptured relationship with God, that it is equally true to say at the heart of peace is a restored relationship with God, a relationship that Jesus came to restore, that he wants to restore and deepen with each one of us. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you pray, your fear will disappear. That if you read Scripture, your anxiety will subside. It does happen for some, but it doesn't happen for all. Here's what I am saying. If you will come to a deep understanding and experience of the God of Calvary, the God who says, where are you? The God who desires restored relationship with you. It will build a solid foundation beneath your feet, a rock on which you can stand as you engage the fears and the anxieties that come your way. And when you stand on that rock, filled with his spirit, Engaging that battle, you will know I am not alone. He will walk with me in the journey to peace.
Gracious God, I pray that your spirit would fill us, that your love would change us, that your power would inspire us, and that, Lord, whenever we engage realities like fear and anxiety, that we will do so with our feet firmly planted on the rock, sheltered by the shadow of your presence. In the name of Jesus, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.